Since its discovery in 1963, DNA has revolutionized our world in many ways. From medical research to paternity tests to solving crimes, thanks to DNA, we now have a better understanding of who we are, how we've developed, and how we can heal. This is Christine Scalora with the Oxford Comment. For today's episode, we're commemorating National DNA Day in the United States by discussing different aspects of DNA research, looking at it from the perspective of scientific research, international policymaking, open science, and spirituality. For our first interview, we were excited to welcome Amber Hartman Schultz, co-author of the article, Myth-Busting the Provider-User Relationship for Digital Sequence Information. We talked about her research on how genetic resources are actually used and shared across the globe. Research that, as the title suggests, had some surprising findings with important implications for policymakers. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Can you please give us a brief introduction to you and your research? Absolutely. Hi there. Um, I am Amber Hartman Schultz. I am the deputy to the director at the Leibniz Institute DSNC, which in German stands for the Deutsche Sammlung von Mikroorganismen und Zellkulturen, um, but in English means the German collection of microorganisms and cell cultures. So can you uh, give us a brief overview into some of the research you recently published in the journal GigaScience? Sure. Um, so we were looking at um, myth busting is what we actually ended up calling it. So um, we were we are been really involved. So I and, and, and other colleagues on this paper um, are closely following a UN environmental treaty, which is the Convention on Biological Diversity. And uh, the Convention on Biological Diversity's big picture planetary goal is to reduce the impacts of the human caused sixth mass extinction of living organisms on this planet. And the way that these UN treaties get done is that they offer a compromise at the international political level. So in order to achieve the first two goals of the Convention on Biological Diversity, and I'll call it the CBD probably from here on out, we have to have two goals that really try to achieve those planetary ambitions. Number one, the conservation of biological diversity, and number two, the sustainable use of its parts. And the third goal is essentially a, a compromise and an incentivization mode built into the treaty. And that is the fair and equitable benefit sharing from genetic resources, which basically means the biological diversity, the zebras, the tigers, the orchids, the, the rainforest plants, animals, all the way down to the pathogens and the microbes and the fungi that are in a country's border belong to them. And the idea of fair and equitable benefit sharing means that when somebody comes in and uses an orchid to develop the next cancer fighting wonder drug, they are supposed to enter into an agreement with that country and say, I will give you back a portion of the benefits from that research that I did, including potentially in the case of a cancer fighting wonder drug, the royalties perhaps from a patent or from an invention that they might've made from that. And this is premised on the idea that the, that the countries assume that researchers generally from high income developed countries will come into these countries and the low or middle income countries will be inherently motivated to 
protect their biodiversity, to conserve their biodiversity in order to enable this novel sort of monetary benefit sharing mechanism. Because the, th the thinking goes, I will protect my biodiversity because I will get benefits out of it. And this is what we call in the paper, the provider user relationship, the provider being the country with that famous orchid for the someday future cancer drug and the user being the, let's say, traditionally, you know, white old man coming from a high income country that should be using that stuff and then turning benefits back to the country. This relationship between provider and user is one that is sort of the stereotype that governs that third goal of the Convention on Biological Diversity. And it's one thing to say, this is how we think the system works. And it's another thing to actually have the data to prove it. And so what we tried to do in this paper was to do a little myth busting, right? And that's like, it's kind of a trendy word that says, okay, you think you know how something works, but let's see if that's actually true. And so what we did was to take the global sequence data sets. So 284 billion sequences that scientists over the last 40 years have collected and put together in one large infrastructure database called the International Nucleotide Sequence Database Collaboration and ask ourselves, how are these sequences used in science by looking at the publications where these, science, where these sequences were cited? And number two, where are those users, the scientists that are publishing on these sequences, where are they located? And what we found out, and, and why we think this, this article is an important thing for policymakers in the CBD space, in the UN space, to be aware of, is that actually it's not as simple as that traditional metaphor. You know, rich, white, old professor comes down to the rainforest, takes the orchid, makes a cancer drug, and is supposed to give something back. In fact, it's much more chaotic than we traditionally have thought. There are many biologists and users in low and middle income countries that are using data that is being generated in a regional sense from the biodiversity within their own countries. There is a lot of use of sequence data from high income countries, even though it's traditionally not thought of as mega biodiversity. It's actually still really useful data, even if it's boring data. And in general, the metaphor that we said Many people in the CBD world and the CBD paradigm would say it's a one-way street, uh, low and middle income countries into high income countries. And actually what we're seeing here is a wild and crazy and cacophonous traffic circle where there's use and providing of, of data and of genetic resources in many, many different directions. And that traditional provider user relationship is actually just not true. I think um, that was really helpful, like the different metaphors and like clearly explaining what it is, the actual data that we're looking at. What made you decide to look into this provider user relationship in the first place? I mean, it's a great question, Christine. And I think, um, you know, you often do things out of, uh, out of necessity, right? And the necessity that we have right now, um, and we're talking sort of around the anniversary of DNA Day, there are new ideas as we further develop the CBD and come into new political agreements and we need new political compromise, there has been an increasing call to extend the rules of the Convention on Biological Diversity and its other legal instruments beyond just the physical samples, you know, that I go into the rainforest, I take the orchid, to now saying it's not about physically accessing those genetic resources. Actually, what we would like to do now is extend these benefit sharing rules to data. And the biggest 
target of that data because of the incredible growth in genome sequencing technology and the incredible drop in the prices of sequencing technology is DNA sequence data. So what that is, those are the ACs, Gs, and Ts, or in the case of, of RNA, the, the Us. Those are the nucleotide bases that make up the string of, of DNA, which is the, the molecule of life, the instructions for how to build an organism. And many countries and, and some non-governmental organizations are saying this data, this sequencing data and possibly other kinds of biological data should fall under the rules of access and benefit sharing. Meaning if you use data that came from my biodiversity, then you must give benefits back to me. Benefits perhaps in, in, in the sense of research results, um, like the kinds that colleagues and I generate, or in the case of uh, commercial actors, you need to give us back money. We wanna have money from the use of data that was generated from our bi biodiversity. And then you might say, well, that sounds like a fair and, and a reasonable ask. I mean, if we're using that data and the agreement is uh, the biodiversity was used to generate the data, then shouldn't the benefits naturally then also flow back to these countries? And the answer is, I agree. It makes good sense. The problem and the reason that we did this study is because we think there's lots of bad ways to do those new rules, those new laws. So one thing that you could do would be to say, let's close down the databases and let's put a big paywall in front of them, meaning you can't access our data, you can't access this, this biodiversity data or other kinds of sequence data unless you pay to see it first. Or you could say, let's use cryptographic technology to follow and track the use of the sequence data throughout the, the value chain and create a tremendous amount of bureaucracy and inefficiencies along the way. And so we provided this, this data set and this analysis of who's using the data and where they located and, and what are they doing with the with these data to say hey be very careful if and how you regulate this dna sequence data because if you do it wrong our data show you're going to have incredibly broad unintended consequences around the world and we think that there could be much smarter ways to do that that wouldn't break the system and still actually incentivize and preserve this incredibly active use of sequence data by scientists. Yeah, that's really interesting. Um, were you surprised by the findings? Had you gone into this research sort of expecting to find that one-way street instead of a, a traffic circle? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think um, I felt a sense of, huh, isn't the world interesting? I mean, this is the fun part about doing and, and being in science, especially at this neat little intersection between science and policy. Um, I think I was surprised by the volume of activity in low and middle income countries. I think many people just don't appreciate how much is happening um, and how global science is, how many international collaborations we could identify in, the, in this large data set. I think this is maybe you know sort of a broader question about the role of, of of science and policy. There's many examples of where, oh hey, the things that we've been doing and thinking all the time actually might not be the best ways to do things. And it is really the the responsibility of of science to take evidence and to put it into the policy making process and say, you have these biases. You think that you're doing things the right way, but yet, 
you actually need to look at the data before you make further decisions. And so I guess the answer is I was surprised, um, but it felt right in my, my gut to the answers that we got. Uh, what is the role of open science in the context of your research? Uh, open science, it's a great, uh, it's a great phrase. Um, so open science is sort of kind of the alpha and the omega in this particular research um, project in, this, in these results. Um, so the cool thing about many kinds of biological data, but particularly and especially DNA sequence data, which is also known as digital sequence information, it began back in the early 1980s. We, we first had the ability to record um, pieces of DNA strings, these ACs and Gs and Ts, and researchers at first, we're sort of publishing these letters in, in tables in their scientific publications, right? So they would say, you know, gene X uh, has the letters ACGT, TCGA, and gene Y, you know, other letters. And then, you know, a couple of uh, people that were working in this field got together and they said, you know, it would actually be a really good idea is if we, instead of, you know, publishing these tables where it becomes extremely laborious and tedious to go to figure out what the researcher that came before me um, wrote about, what we're going to do is we're going to create a, a database. And at first it was just a very, very rudimentary, you know, spreadsheet basically, or, or a database. And over time, if you kept growing, you know, people kept getting better and better at, at, at DNA sequencing technology. And actually the, 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 the breakthrough was really that the Americans and the British um, got together and said, okay, let's start swapping data between us so that not only are we keeping kind of like a central record of this data but also um we're going to have like a mirrored copy of it so we're going to have a copy in england and we're going to have a copy um in, in bethesda maryland at the time in the united states and then the japanese were also you know making progress and then they also got on board and they said okay let's do this like three-way copying of the data and from the very beginning these these data these sequence data were open they, they were open for anybody to use and in fact it's really the sort of system of record of scientific publishing in this field to say these are the data that i produced and generated and i demonstrate that my results are valid and accurate by putting my data in the database of record. And so you, as any other scientist that would come behind me and, and question my results as part of the normal sort of academic or uh, process or the process of peer review, can come behind and look in the database and see what I did and check it and are also able to build upon it to continue to expand our knowledge in this uh, DNA space. And that system has been going on for 40 years. And although there were efforts when the human genome, which is all of the DNA uh, in a human body, when the human genome was being sequenced, there were efforts to, to close up part of that. But um, the funding agencies that were, were funding the human genome project said, no, this data is going to be open. And in fact, some principles known as the Bermuda principles, and then later the, the Fort Lauderdale agreement, basically said, in fact, not only is the data going to be published open and free for all, it's actually even going to be, be released before the scientists themselves have had a chance to even analyze and work on that data, which is actually, if you think about it in terms of open science, somewhat unprecedented, right? Because normally the traditional scientific process would be, I reveal my results to you after I've had a chance to analyze them myself so that I don't get scooped. Scoop means you don't give somebody else the opportunity to publish similar results before you've had a chance to do so yourself. So the openness in this whole DNA sequencing data space was actually there from the very beginning. And as uh, the databases have continued to exponentially grow, I mean, 
really an amazing amount of data in, in, in the space of, of big data, petrobytes of data, um, this openness has been preserved. And then the, the omega part of my answer, and I said it's the alpha and the omega, is that actually this open system was what allowed us as researchers to come behind and do such a global analysis to say, let's take all of the data all at once and then combine the open scientific data, the, the DNA genetic data, with the open access publication system where we transparently put you know, author names, author affiliations, and cite the sequences that we use in these publications. And so really being able to combine those two different data sets um, has been important. And I would also say, um, because it's also important to be self-critical, this is also the limitation, an important limitation of this study is that this article only reflects the open access publications that, that are available and connected to this to this uh, sequence data, because we don't have the ability to text mine to go in through and automatically uh, record the citations in in publications, if the publications are closed in the first place. And of course, um, publishing in GigaScience is an open access journal, and in fact, our results themselves are also available in an open access way. So I guess you can see open science uh, along the entire chain of events. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about all the sort of different layers of uh, <laughs> of openness happening there. Exactly. Yeah. So you've talked about um, many different stakeholders and different parties involved, whether they're scientists or even sort of more political institutions. Who do you hope to reach with this paper and this research? Anybody that will listen? <laughs> no, I mean um, the, the the target audience for sure are the governments that are parties to the Convention on Biological Diversity, as well as the governments that are parties to other types of UN treaties that are looking at this issue. So uh, we've been talking today mainly about the Convention on Biological Diversity, but there are a number of other treaties, including the International Treaty for Plant Genetic Resources on Food and Agriculture, or the UN Convention on the Law of the High Seas, and uh, potentially, well, and also the World Health Organization, um, because all of those instruments are looking at the issue of how do we treat sequence data in a fair and equitable manner? How do we ensure that it is still maintaining the public good that it's used for, but yet potentially also delivering benefits back to the countries of origin that provided access to their biodiversity in the first place? And it is, you know, in, in international lawmaking, it is governments that get to decide. Now, um, there are other organizations like non-governmental organizations, and there are um, representatives from indigenous peoples and local communities that also have an important role to play, as well as um, stakeholders from the commercial sector, from industry and from academia like myself. And I think it's important that as a as sort of a global community that we're aware of, of results like this, but, but primarily in order to make different decisions and in order to make sensible policy choices, I think the goal of this particular paper is actually less the other scientists like me or other colleagues that are working on sequence data, but in this particular case for this article, it's really aimed at, at policymakers um, in the hopes that it provides a useful perspective as they continue to negotiate on this issue. Yeah. Um, so what, in your mind, are those sensible policy issues that you would like to see enacted? When I first started working in, in this area, in this particular policy space, um, the, the question about what do we do with 
open data when we have agreements that require benefit sharing. Um, my first preference back then would have been to say, don't make any rules or any new laws in this space because that can only go wrong. That can only end up bad. Open data is really important. It is the bread and butter of so many scientists, I mean, in particular biologists, but, but of so many scientists um, in, the, in the work that they do. And um, making new laws will only create more bureaucracy. Uh, and I find that science seems to continue, like many sectors, I guess, to be filled with more and more rules and regulations and democracy. So my initial feeling was to say, don't do anything at all. There are no sensible solutions. Leave it alone. And through talking to um, to different colleagues and and influencers in this uh, geeky space, I think that that's the great outcome of of dialogue. I think what I really hear is the the voice of countries, many from the developing world and other organizations, sort of saying, you know, fundamentally the state of science has changed since these rules came into place. So back in 1992 at the Rio summit, when these, when, when this treaty along with two others, including the climate change um, treaty were initially negotiated, the idea that sequence data would be so critical for life sciences research, including for industrial outputs was not really on anybody's radar. I mean, maybe there would be some sort of scientists that would have known how important it was going to become, but, but but many of the policymakers would have no idea sort of about that space. Um, but what we've seen um, in the last, you know, 10, 20 years has really been a revolution in biology. And what I mean by that is if you think back, the, the 2020 Nobel Prize in chemistry was given to two women that invented something called CRISPR-Cas. And this is for laymen, basically genetic scissors. It gives biologists really, really user-friendly tools to be able to slice and dice DNA. And then we've also had incredible breakthroughs in the ability to sequence and to synthesize new DNA. And so now I'm not talking about actually just reading the DNA, I'm talking about writing the DNA, about actually constructing the biological molecule from scratch, from the computer's data. And all of these technologies coming together has meant that scientists do not have the same requirement. They don't have the same scientific need to go into the rainforest and pick up that brand new fungus from a tree to be able to make a novel breakthrough. In fact, because of the new technologies, it has become much more simpler to go to the big public open databases to compare your gene of interest and then to synthesize that new gene to put it into a, a relatively easy vector to work with like a bacteria or something and then to carry on with your research meaning the principle of the conventional biological diversity that we talked about at the beginning that i need to go back to the country ask permission has fundamentally been disrupted because if I only ever have to go on my computer and in five minutes I have the data I need and then I can synthesize it in some laboratory somewhere else, then the principles and the inherent motivation that was supposed to be there in the CBD with its three goals has fundamentally kind of fallen apart. And so now, you know, two or three years later from where I started out in this field, I see the need for compromise. Um, I, I see the right and the fair call for benefit sharing. And I think what I and other colleagues in the academic sector are, are also sort of saying is, but what you don't want to do if you look for benefit sharing from sequence data is to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And what I mean by that is if you introduce new policies or new laws that are incredibly 
burdensome and basically bring this kind of research to a halt or you break it into you know the haves and the have nots in a technological sense then um, you can only go wrong it will be a big big mess and what i think the the best path forward here is is actually to break apart a very well-known acronym um, amongst us CBD influencers, and that's the acronym ABS. So that stands for access and benefit sharing. And it's this principle, like we talked about before, that you go into a country, you take something, you access it. And then that, that access determines the benefit sharing, what that researcher is supposed to give back to the country. And so what we're calling for is we want to break that, that acronym apart. We do not want to tie benefit sharing to access, in this case, access to the sequence data. We want and are calling for simple, global, standardized rules about benefit sharing that aren't tied to accessing individual pieces of data, that aren't tied to, you know, this is my thing and therefore you have to give me back these benefits. Um, and where I hope the sweet spot of, you know, negotiations and discussions over the coming year and beyond might be, is to look for, for example, benefit sharing mechanisms that generate monetary benefits, for example, decouples from the sequence data set, but that might act downstream. So what about, you know, kind of wild ideas like a biodiversity fee, if there are products that are, that are um, based upon the use of biodiversity, that there is a small little it's called a micro levy, right? Where you have a relatively small charge that doesn't doesn't affect the, the user's buying power or buying decision, but it goes into a global fund that compensates at the international level for the use of that biodiversity in the first place. And there are other mechanisms that are also being discussed, but the fundamental idea is that you decouple, you separate access from benefit sharing when it comes to this global uh, data good. Um, yeah, that was very helpful to understand. Um, so in conclusion, can you tell us what is at stake with these policies? Yeah, um, I mean, what is at stake is always sort of a question like, do you want to um, be a dramatist? The world will fall apart and life as we know it will never be the same. I mean, that would, you know, of course, be an interesting answer to give. But um, I think the the silver lining, as sad and horrific as this pandemic has been for so many of us in, in so many different ways, has been that most of us have a much deeper familiarity with the outcomes of pathogens, of, of viruses in this case, and um, realize how life-altering they can be. And the way that this connects back to this research is that if you think about the, the COVID-19 vaccine, um, it really came about in an unprecedented amount of time relative to the back to, to the development of other vaccines. Of course, we would have hoped that it would have been faster, but I mean, 10 months is not actually all that slow. Um, and that's including the time for clinical trials. And the reason that that was possible was because of, of sequence data, because very, very, very early on in the very first weeks of the pandemic, Chinese researchers put the sequence data into the global database that we've been talking about, the INSDC. And vaccine development companies and um, academic researchers worked hand in hand to very quickly identify sections of the genome that would be an appropriate vaccine candidate for what we probably most of us got shot into our arms ultimately. And so if you go back to sort of thinking, well, if international law starts to regulate how and where we use sequence data, then you could say, well, the, the, the risks are big, right? The, 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 the possible consequences to 
public health in the sense of pandemic preparedness. And we shouldn't forget, you know, we're all thinking about SARS-CoV-2 right now. That's the, the name of the virus. But there's also other scary viruses out there like Ebola or like Zika or, you know, like H1N1. I mean, we, you know, there's always going to be some other pathogen out there, not, not to mention things like Salmonella or E. coli. All of these are living organisms and all of them make us sick. And the way that we develop therapeutics and respond to new th biological threats is through sequence data. And that's incredibly true for microorganisms because they're invisible. Like the more molecular tools that we have in this invisible world, the, the faster that we're going to be able to react. And so this global data set and its openness and its availability to be used quickly and cooperatively around the world is fundamental to our success on this planet. And that's just an example from public health. And so humans tend to care a lot about health first, which is why I mentioned it first. But, you know, there's other great examples. I mean, if you think about um, the, the threatened species that we're about to lose on the planet. So a, a great success story is, for example, um, the condor, the, the, you know, the big sort of iconic bird that goes all along the Pacific coasts. The reason that that bird is no longer on the verge of extinction is because scientists look through the genes of the condor, the, the genome, and said, hey, um, we're not getting enough genetic mixing. Um, and so these, these birds are getting inbred. And it turns out that if we add in new genetic diversity, because we know how to do targeted breeding and mix different birds from different geographical readings together in a very directed way, we'll actually be able to make this bird more genetically diverse to protect it from all sorts of population bottlenecks that a really small uh, population size can have. And, and, and that's sort of an example from, from conservation or, or, or many other people have, might have heard of die out of amphibians um, where this sort of keystone species, you know, frogs, um, toads, newts and salamanders were just sort of disappearing all at once. Well, why are they disappearing? It turns out they had this really funky um, fungus that was growing on them and, 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 and killing them from the outside in. And this discovery, this ability to protect amphibians came from the observation of let's collect lots of different frog samples from around the world and figure out what's in them. And then once we did that, not we, not me, but others, um, you were able to observe that that thing that they all had in common was this fungus that ended up being responsible for this amphibian die off. And that was all done through genetic data. And so the point is, if you break the system, all of these different kinds of public good, health, conservation of, of endangered species, keystone species in an ecosystem, and then all of its ecosystem services that come out of it are fundamentally also threatened. And that's why I think the compromise is you know, a really important place to, 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 to seek out. This has all been really informative. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Christine. Our second guest was Dee Denver, author of The Dharma in DNA, Insights at the Intersection of Biology and Buddhism. We discussed the significance of DNA research, what lay people should know about DNA and why, and what role DNA plays at the intersection of science and spirituality. So thank you so much for joining us on the Oxford Comet. Can you please introduce yourself and tell us a bit about your work? Uh, yeah, thank you very much for the opportunity. Um, I appreciate it. Uh, my name is Dee Denver. I'm the uh, professor and department chair of integrative biology at Oregon State University, um, where I've been since 2006. Um, I'm an evolutionary geneticist. Um, I also uh, do work studying the intersection of biology and Buddhism, um, which is the topic of my new book, The Dharma and DNA. 
Um, and so, yeah, um, I've been there since 2006 at OSU. I'm also um, a, a father um, to two adoptive children. Um, and that's another thing I get into in my book is kind of have um, some personal pieces to it. So could you tell us how you became interested in studying evolutionary genetics? Uh, yeah, so it was um, during my uh, undergraduate years. So I went to the University of Missouri um, for my undergraduate, started off as a chemistry major, um, kind of took a biology class as an elective and really got hooked. Um, that's where I got introduced to evolutionary theory. I hadn't been exposed to too much earlier in St. Joseph, Missouri. And so um, I really found it fascinating, the dynamics of biology, that it's you know a changing thing, really resonated with me. And that got me reading really well-known authors like uh, Stephen Jay Gould and Richard Dawkins. And I really kind of felt like that resonated with me a lot and I was hooked. So um, that's kind of where I got into it. And then doing research um, for my PhD studies um, in Kansas City, in fact, um, I was able to make my way into a evolutionary genetics lab, and we actually were able to do evolution experiments in the lab and kind of see it happen in real time and apply some really cool DNA sequencing technologies to it. Um, and so I really felt like that was home for me and kind of my my place in my path. What role can DNA and DNA research play in society in general? So sort of what should a lay person know about DNA and its uses? Yeah, so I think, um, you know, there's um, quite a bit, first of all, um, and, uh, you know, our understanding of DNA and how it works in biology and its role has been really important to, um, you know, developing a lot of um, biomedical therapies and um, combating diseases. Um, a really great example is vaccine development, um, our ability to um, create really sophisticated new vaccine approaches to the flu or COVID or whatever else um, really relies um, on our understanding of um, DNA, how, how it works, how it interacts with other kinds of biological molecules. Without that knowledge, we couldn't do this sort of stuff. It's also in society, you know, um, really important applications in forensics, paternity testing, really um, critical roles in our ability to answer questions surrounding that. Um, I'll also maybe point to a few other, you know, specific endeavors. I might point out the Innocence Project, um, which is a really amazing nonprofit effort to um, exonerate individuals wrongly convicted. Um, and that really relies on DNA, genetic applications to revisiting some old cases and um, bringing that DNA light to things um, to help exonerate people who are wrongly convicted. So that those are all kind of up, upsides. I'll also, um, to be balanced and fair, say that um, there have been some troubling pieces to genetics and DNA in society that um, maybe don't get highlighted as often, but I think are important. One historical one I'll talk about is um, the association between evolutionary genetics and eugenics. So that was a thing in kind of the early 1900s, um, this notion that there's this sort of genetically superior people, <laughs> um, groups of people. And um, that was a really big thing um, in that time, like I said. And it led to, you know, it was a rationale for the Holocaust. Um, the Nazis pointed to eugenic research done by Americans and Europeans as a rationale. Um, and also... Um, you know, the sterilizations that happened 
forced sterilizations in the United States for things like, quote, feeble-mindedness or, quote, sexual deviancy that, um, you know, they decided this is a sufficient reason to sterilize this individual. And so that's, um, was again, sort of this eugenics motivated sort of idea. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so I think it's important to kind of look at um, those things as well as the positives. And of course we could get into things like DNA editing, um, which has been in the news and sort of all the ethical questions that circulate around that. Yeah, so it sounds like it can be a very powerful tool for for good or for for bad. But um, speaking of um, another sort of connection um, to DNA and society that people may not be super familiar with, you recently published a book about the connection between science and spirituality, um, particularly Buddhism. So can you briefly tell us what your book is about? Yeah, thanks. Um, so my book, The Dharma and DNA, it examines kind of the intersection between biology and Buddhism. Um, and it might offhand seem like um, that's an odd pairing, but there's quite a bit of harmony and a lot of um, commonalities um, between the two um, approaches to understanding things. So yeah, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll describe the book. I, there are kind of three main objectives to it that I talk about, um, along with sort of an interwoven side project personal narrative. So th the first goal of the book is to really share information about Buddhist teaching and principles to kind of more science-minded or Western readers um, that might not be very familiar with it. Um, and to, in doing so, highlight some of the common features that these two seemingly separate ways of thinking have. So that's kind of the beginning of the, the book. There's also, I really emphasize a lot of sort of hidden history. Um, these two have actually come in contact quite a bit with one another over the last century or so in the context of European colonialism. And I think that's, that's really, you know, not well known here in the West. That is, for example, um, the British would go to Sri Lanka and interact with folks there in colonial kind of ways. There would, would be dialogues surrounding, for example, around that time, um, Darwin's theory of evolution was new and discussions with, say, some Buddhist monks in Sri Lanka about the similarities. Oh, our way of Buddhist way of thinking, um, which emphasizes change quite a bit, pretty in line with Darwinian evolution. And so that's, you know, at the onset of the book, I felt like I was doing something new, but I realized, oh no, um, this has been done for quite some time, this dialogue. It's just that I'm new to it and that it's hidden. It's, you know, we don't see this in our history books. We think about religion and science. We think about Christianity and evolution, maybe not some of these other traditions. So yeah, the second goal of the book is to, um, you know, it's kind of a more sciencey approach. So um, taking three core ideas of Buddhism and turning them into hypotheses. Um, I kind of think about them as the Buddha's hypotheses about how things work and how the universe is. And so I take those, um, turn them into scientific hypotheses, and then test them using what we know about DNA. I say, okay, given what we know about DNA, does this support or not support this Buddhist hypothesis? And so the three are um, impermanence. So like I mentioned before, Buddhism really focuses on um, sort of ephemeral nature of things. Things are always changing. Um, that's one. Um, the second one is in Buddhism, there's this idea of non-self, which is often a really challenging one for Western thinkers. The idea that there are no sort of inherent essences. Because everything's changing, we as people or other things of the universe don't really have a true self-essence. And that's um, another idea. And the third is Buddhism's cause and effect framework. So they have a um, 
mutual cause and effect way of thinking, that everything's kind of a mutual cause and effect of one another, rather than linear cause and effect than what we're used to in the West, kind of um, a chain of events. And so kind of spoiler alert is what we know about DNA kind of supports all three of those ideas in my digestion of it in the book. So the third goal I have in the book is really actually to propose a kind of a new way of doing science that's guided by Buddhist teachings and Buddhist ethics. And so, um, you know, I call it Bodhi science. And the approach really emphasizes selflessness, awareness, non-attachment to ideas, your own ideas, and compassion um, is sort of the motivation and drive for science. And this kind of contrasts with what I might typify the commonplace sort of ego drive and competitiveness um, that I think people often associate with sort of science culture, that the way science um, is done in kind of competitive sort of ways. Um, so I propose this approach really has a strong potential to lead to better science and happier scientists. And so that's kind of the, um, the final goal of the book. And like I said at the onset, there's also I interweave some sort of memoir um, personal narrative throughout about my experiences as an adoptive father and a, a white adoptive father to black children. And in the context of me being a geneticist, um, really kind of disinterested in passing on my own DNA, um, always have kind of wanted to be an adoptive father. So I explore that um, in the book as well. Another thing I'll kind of noteworthy thing I might highlight is that, you know, in Western culture, a really strong association between DNA and senses of identity. You hear the phrase, it's in my DNA. Commercials all, all over the place, Kendrick Lamar songs, it's all over. And so that's one thing that I thought made DNA a really good study subject for this. And um, so, like I said, a big concept in Buddhism is this notion of a rejection of a true self, of a true essence. And in my investigation, the book um, supports that idea that DNA is there and it does stuff and it's part of you but it doesn't define you. And so I think that um, kind of Buddhist view of DNA is important and can help prevent a lot of misunderstanding, misrepresentation of what DNA is actually about. That seems um, very comprehensive and you're covering a lot of different things in your book. Is sort of this competitive Western approach to science kind of practiced throughout the world or are there places where they have started to practice some of the principles that you've been that writing about in terms of more compassionate science and things like that. Yeah, so, you know, I don't want to um, oversell the idea that scientists are just a ton of ego-driven individuals. Um, but it is certainly, I would say, often prominent and prevalent. Um, it's also, you know, if we think about some of the, you know, key figures like James Watson, um, and how, for example, the structure of DNA was elucidated, the double helix, all of that kind of happened in a big competition between James uh, Watson and Francis Crick competing with Linus Pauling. And, you know, stories like that really, I think, paint a picture of how science kind of happens in this competitive kind of way. We compete for grant dollars. We compete to be the first to publish something to discover something. And so, you know, I think, um, although it's not universal, I would say it's a pretty prevalent vibe in science. However, you know, um, scientists also perform research motivated to help people for compassionate reasons anyway, outside of Buddhism. 
But I think, you know, the, the distinction here is with what I'm proposing is a very sort of pointed and explicit approach to science um, that, that is not competitive. Um, that, that's more about finding truths and um, honoring compassion as an important motivator in our connections to one another. To your point about finding truths and more sort of compassion, you are a researcher who has published open access scholarship. And what role does open science play in your work? Yeah, so I'm, I'm a big supporter of open access science and scholarship. Um, and in fact, I'll say I see it as an ethical obligation um, to share publicly funded research with the taxpayers that paid for it. Um, I, I see that as just um, an obligation. So I've mostly published in open access scientific journals over the last decade, um, especially when the work's led by my research group. Sometimes research happens in big collaborations and there are multiple voices at the table, but I think it's really important um, to share research in this way. You know, I'll also, however, highlight um, some issues that come with it um, that are we're still kind of working through. One is that it's really expensive to the author. Um, so typically there are publication charges that are at least $2,000 to publish your paper. Um, some, sometimes as high as, you know, five to $10,000. And so, you know, thus, this app is just not financially feasible for a lot of people, um, especially you might imagine scientists working in developing nations. Um, it's just not realistic. So I really, really like open access and philosophy. I think it's important, but um, there are still some systemic issues that need to be worked, worked out in terms of how it's implemented. Do you think open access research is especially important when it comes to DNA research? And if so, why? Yeah, that, that's an interesting question. I've thought about this one. Um, on one level, I think um, all scientific research that's publicly funded, regardless, is important to publish open access. With uh, DNA, you know, one thing that comes to mind is the volume of it. There are so many scientists studying um, DNA, and with the advent of new high-throughput DNA sequencing technologies, and how um, available that technology is to more people these days. There's a lot of it just coming out. So I think for that reason, um, there's sort of a special importance for DNA in getting it out there and open. Yeah, those are some interesting considerations. I think you sort of touched on this, but part of open science in general, not just publishing open access, is being able to make sure that everyone can freely access the data and I'm thinking in terms of like DNA sequencing information. What do you think is the significance of making sure that DNA data itself and not just the research is made available? Yeah, so um, I think the data um, is at least equally important to the publication in terms of getting it out there and available. Again, with this high volume um, of DNA information coming out these days, it really presents an opportunity for different perspectives to be applied to it. You know, like I was mentioning earlier, you know, perhaps only certain individuals in the past got to consider the DNA and think about um, the relevance of it or how it might be applied. And I think when you bring more perspectives on a given question, um, that gives you more power to find insights and truths. And it also gets to um, individuals that might be working in places that can't financially create their own DNA sequence data. So um, in places that might not be able to do that, um, they could at least get the data others have produced and maybe um, do some analysis um, of that data and look at it in different ways, perhaps do some comparisons 
that others wouldn't do or look in ways that others haven't. And so I think that's um, really super important. Bring new perspectives and approaches to analyzing the data. Yeah, and um, you talked about publishing open access. Has the aspect of open science played a role in your own research? Yeah, so um, I'll, uh, in, in both ways, I'll say we, we've been very diligent about um, uploading our data to public databases. In fact, I, you know, I'll uh, credit the publishers that they make that a requirement. And so that's um, something we've been good about, I think. Um, the other one is, yeah, just taking advantage of the information out there. Um, and as kind of a, a final bit, I'll um, highlight an example that actually connects to Buddhism too. One species we've started studying is Ficus religiosa, also known as Bodhi trees. Um, and this is the species of fig tree that the Buddha sat under during his enlightenment back in 500 BC. And uh, there's a really um, amazing historical story of how this tree lineage has spread around the planet in association with Buddhism. And so we've thought this is a really great study system um, at this intersection. With this big world spiritual tradition, there's actually a living entity that's its symbol. And so we wanted to start studying this. We hadn't studied trees um, much before in the past. Um, so a great starting point was other researchers had sequenced the chloroplast DNA, the organelle that does photosynthesis in the trees. Um, it has a genome. And they sequenced that DNA from um, a plant they had and submitted it to a database. And so that um, allowed us to see that sequence information and start um, designing our own studies to examine population genetic variation in Bodhi trees around the world. Yeah, that's a very nice sort of full circle example to, to bring it all together. Thank you for sharing your perspective with us. We really appreciate you taking the time to come on the podcast. Yeah, thanks to y'all. This has been a terrific experience. Uh, really value the opportunity. We want to thank our guest, Amber Hartman Schultz, co-author of the article, Mythbusting the Provider-User Relationship for Digital Sequence Information, which can be read for free in the open access journal, GigaScience, and Dee Denver, author of The Dharma in DNA, now available from OUP. New episodes of the Oxford Comet will premiere on the last Tuesday of each month. Be sure to follow OUP Academic on SoundCloud and YouTube to stay up to date with upcoming podcast episodes. While you're at it, please do subscribe to the Oxford Comment wherever you regularly listen to podcasts, including Apple, Google, and Spotify. Lastly, we want to thank the crew of the Oxford Comment for their assistance on today's episode. Episode 71 was produced by Stephen Philippi, Stella Edison, and Amelia Stork. This is Christine Scalora. Thank you for listening.